We're going to be in Acts chapter 9 today. We're going to do the first 31 verses. What does it take to transform a person's life? What does it take for a person to be living one way, zealously, strongly, not willing to listen, not willing to be convinced, and then to completely turn around and go the other way? What does it take to do that for somebody? There are people that might even say that's not even possible. You heard that before, right? People don't really change. People don't ever change. It's just a matter of time. This is just a fad, and then eventually they're going to come back. And I'm not talking about people who have potential, and they're unskilled or they're undisciplined, and then they work at it for a long time, and then they get really good. Oh, I changed. Well, I'm kind of, but not really, because it was always in there, and it was you working to draw it out. I'm talking about somebody that had none of it in there, and all of a sudden they're living as if it was real transformation that you can't practice, that you can't work at, that you don't look back and see, oh, look at, this is my, my trajectory. Just day to night, life to death. I've been reading a book about efficiency and planning, and always funny to me when I see chapters like this in there, because they were examining, as an example, Alcoholics Anonymous, and they were also including churches in this. And they were talking about how, you know, people are always wanting to change. And it seems that when people go to AA or they go to a church, then people change all the time. Now, what is it about those groups that makes people change? And they talk about the belief in the higher power. And they talk about being in a community and things like that. And they, they talk about how scientists from Duke and Yale and everywhere else started studying this. And they came up with three or four keys that need to be there. You need to have a belief in something greater than yourself. And you need to have a community of people that are helping you. And you've got to have a standard that you're held to that is outside of you. And you've got to have service and giving yourself to something else. And if you do all that, then you can fundamentally change yourself. And I'm like, leave it to the researchers to find the most clinical, dry, sterile version of what causes transformation. They had this testimony of this guy who's like, I showed up to this meeting and I started carrying chairs. And then I realized, you know what? That, that made me feel pretty good because I was doing something for somebody else. It's like, yeah, yeah, we've been talking about this for quite a long time. But it's these secular conclusions. Like, well, obviously it's not God. So what is it about believing in God that makes people change? Isn't that the dumbest question you've ever heard in your entire life? Now, people who believe in God transform. Now, we know there's no God. So what's the secret? It's, it's ridiculous to read and listen to sometimes, but this is how the world looks at it. But we know that it's the Lord that changes people's lives. God transforms people. We call it conversion. We call it repentance. Going one way and turning to go the other way. Changing the way that you think. And there are folks that want to say things like, well, yeah, but people who become saved, they always, they grew up in the church. They walked away for a while and eventually they come back to their roots. Okay, well, how do you account for conversions like Saul of Tarsus or our missionary Nepal Nanda, who was, first of all, a Hindu priest then he got caught up in the Marxist revolution and he started traveling around, was a violent man, oppressing the people, forcing people to commit themselves. And then he gets shot and is left for dead, but ends up finding a Christian and threatening this Christian with death if he doesn't give him the tract and ends up getting saved. And now he's a pastor. <laughs> he didn't grow up in the church. He grew up in the exact opposite of that. He started Hindu and then he went further away and became this Maoist revolutionary and now he's a pastor. How do you account for conversions like Charles Finney, who, even though he lived in like the 1800s America, did not grow up as a Christian, was not taught the Bible, grew up and became a lawyer, 
and was mocking Christianity, mocking the faith of these people, until one day he realized, I can't really understand these law books very well because they keep referring to all these Bible verses, and I don't know any of them. So he buys a Bible and starts reading it in secret. Have you heard this story? He would, when people would come to his door when he's reading his Bible, he'd throw other books on top of it so that nobody would know. He hated his pastor. He said they couldn't preach. This was later after he was a big-time evangelist. They couldn't preach. They didn't teach the right doctrines. And nobody ever cared to come and share the gospel with me. And yet he, on his own, without anybody sharing the gospel with him, becomes one of the greatest evangelists the United States has ever seen. How do you account for that? And you have to account for that. Or you're going to discount what's happening here in the church. You have to account for the fact that people who are going so far the opposite direction come into contact with Jesus, and then their life totally changes. That doesn't happen anywhere else. And we're going to look at this today. We know where transformation comes from. That when God steps in to save somebody, there's nobody that can stop him. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. How do you know that's true? Because your friends will tell you after you become a Christian. I liked you better before, man. You're different. You're not like you used to be. You're like, yeah, I know. Isn't that awesome? I was awful before. You all hated me before, and now all of a sudden you want me back? Yeah, it's strange how that works, isn't it? The fruit that God can bear through one transformed life is incalculable. You can't figure it out because there's so much that one life impacts. One life changes so many other people that when God steps in to save one person, he's really not just saving one, is he? He's changing everything around that person's whole life. And our job and our privilege is not to do that. That's God's job. Our job is to be the reapers that go out into the field and bring in the harvest. The Lord makes the fruit grow and we go out and we just get to pick it. It's like when you take your little kids apple picking, they feel like they're working real hard. It's like, well, yeah, but you didn't plant the tree and you didn't water it and you didn't put the fertilizer down and you didn't prune it. And, but you get to pick the fruit and it's a lot of fun. That's what being a Christian is like. The Lord does all the work and we get to come and pick the fruit. And then we talk about, wow, your basket of apples is so full. Will you come and speak at our conference? It's like, hey, it wasn't me, it was Jesus. I'm just out here picking the fruit. And you guys, the church is not to be a classroom. I'm a, I have a very hard time with that because I love studying the word and figuring out the background and figuring out the language and the doctrine. But the church is not a classroom. It's not a civic center where you have lots of great events where people come in or a social scene where we can come together and it's safe and all that. Are there elements of that? Sure. But the church is, is a hospital, man. It's people coming in off the street and the Lord changing them, healing them, transformation and conversion. And my prayer this morning is that the Lord will set us on fire for that that we would be set on fire to see this church used as the Lord's hospital, as the Lord's transformation center. Let's start in chapter 9, verse 1 and 2. You know the story very well, I'm sure, but let's read it again. But Saul, so coming off all the cool stuff that Philip did in chapter 8, but, meanwhile back at the ranch, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. We'll pause right there. So we were reintroduced. Earlier in chapter 7, he was called the young man, Saul of Tarsus. He is not the old grizzled saint with a big long white beard. That is not him yet. He's a young guy. He was the one that stood in approval at Stephen's death. He stood there watching the cloaks. He stood there 
as, a, as an assistant but not really participating. Part of the lynch mob that got rid of Stephen. And now we see that he has really leaned into that persecution. And he's essentially what we would consider today a religious terrorist. He was from Tarsus, which is in Cilicia, which is in southern Turkey. So that can help you uh, get the, the map straight in your head. But he's trained, we know this from other parts of the Bible, under Gamaliel, who was, remember, in, I believe, chapter 5, he said, look, if this is from the Lord, it's going to continue. If it's not from the Lord, it's going to fade out, so just leave these Christians alone. And he was a renowned teacher and scholar and rabbi in Israel. And Paul got to train under him. Not as everybody got to do that. This means Paul was a sharp guy. And he was a rising star. Not only was he one of his students, but he's able to come into these Sanhedrin meetings, be a part of them, and you know, sort of being the, the assistant, the gopher. You hold the cloaks while we stone Stephen. And in Galatians 1.14, he says about himself that he was advanced in Judaism beyond many of his own age among his people. So extremely zealous was he for the traditions of his fathers. So think of the worst Pharisee that Jesus ever encountered. That's Paul, or Saul as he's known now. He was a Pharisee. He was of the tribe of Benjamin, Named for another famous Benjamite, King Saul. The first king of Israel was named Saul, and he was of the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin was the only other tribe, along with Judah, that returned back to the land. There was also Levites in there as well. But you got to consider who this guy is. They named him Saul. They named him after the king. Born up in Turkey, but they know he's sharp when he's a kid, so they send him down to Jerusalem to learn from Gamaliel. And he does well. And he starts to rise in the ranks. And he's being noticed. And they're bringing him into these meetings. And he's an assistant for these guys now. And he was probably the hope. His, all of his family's hopes were probably riding on Saul of Tarsus. And this guy did nothing halfway. He was not content to say, these Christians are heretics. So let's hope they don't do anything. He says, no, the law says that if anybody contradicts the law, if anybody goes against the temple or the law of Moses, they deserve to die. And I don't care what Rome has to say. We don't serve Rome. We serve the Lord. And he is going to go out and go after these Christians, or of the way, as they were called then. Eventually, in Antioch, we're going to settle on the name Christian, but back then, they were called those of the way. And he's breathing threats and murder. So he's not just going to imprison these people. He's imprisoning them with the later goal of having them executed. And he starts doing that throughout Jerusalem. So you remember the persecution that arose in Jerusalem and scattered the Christians all over the world? That was Saul of Tarsus spearheading that. This was his first big break to really run something on his own, apart from Gamaliel. And Gamaliel had had this really, I guess you could say, pacifist attitude towards the church. Maybe Paul had broken with his teacher on this. He's like, Gamaliel, you're soft. That's a classic young man thing to say, right? About the old wise men. He said, you're, you're soft. And you, you're just so used to the way things are, you're not willing to do what's necessary to hunt these Christians down. And that certainly got him favor with the high priest. And he's permission to go to Damascus, which is a city. Back then it was in the Decapolis. Remember how it said Jesus went up into the Decapolis during his ministry, which is the ten cities. Now, of course, it's the capital of Syria. This is 135 miles north and east of Jerusalem. This is a six-day journey. And it's kind of cool because this is the first city outside of Israel that we know had other Christians in it. We're going to learn about Antioch and, of course, all the places that Paul and Barnabas are going to go. But as of right now... Up to this point, they've been in Israel, in Samaria, if you're including that as part of Israel. Now they're outside of the promised land. 
And you know who this guy would become. And it's easy for us to read this story and skip over this part because we know it's going to become Paul and he's going to write Romans and it's going to be wonderful. But you've got to let his previous life sink in here. This is the worst, violent, radical revolutionary you've ever seen shoved into the back of a police car. This is Saul of Tarsus. This is Osama bin Laden, if you were living in that part of the world. Hunting down people that are not according to the, to the truth as he understands it. This is like the SS looking for Jews in Paris, you guys. It's that level of intensity. You've seen those movies. You've read those books. You've heard the stories. How fearful that was. Hiding people in the closets. Hiding them in, under the rafters. Breaking people's doors down. I've got authority from the high priest. Where are they? Where are you keeping them? What if there was a family where the wife had been saved but the husband had not? He breaks down the door. Now he's dragging mom away from her screaming kids. And there's her husband begging to have her stay. But the guards are holding him back. And Paul says, if you don't back off, I'm going to have you arrested too. That's who this guy is. They were so afraid of him. They scattered. The, the Christians left Jerusalem. That's who this man was. In 1 Timothy 1.13, he called himself a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. Insolent. You ever see some of these people that are trying to stir up trouble for whatever cause, and they're deliberately insolent? They don't listen to anybody. They don't have any sense about them. They're not worried about how it's going to appear. They're insolent. And that's who this man was. What would it take for this man to be saved? Would you believe it if you heard it? Would you believe it if you were living in Nazi-occupied Paris and you found out that Adolf Hitler had been saved and become a Christian? What would you say? Yeah, right. Would you even pray for him to be saved? Or would you be looking through the Psalms and finding some good imprecatory Psalms? Lord, smash their teeth against the ground. Lord, may... May his plans turn on his own head, Lord. Lord, I know we're supposed to desire the good of all people, but Lord, his death would be beneficial for your church. Lord, do that. Maybe that's how the church was praying. But you know that the Lord has a better idea. Let's read this. Now that you know who this guy is, Saul of Tarsus, you can understand why Paul changed his name later, right? Who'd want to be associated with that at all? It's a great Christian tradition of people changing their names. It's wonderful. But verse 3. He's on his way to Damascus. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. This is a story that is told three times in the book of Acts alone, and there's other stories in the rest of the New Testament that give versions of it as well, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, and so on. And you may have noticed around verse 6 that if you have an older translation, it included that, that line, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. As far as we can tell, the, the older you get with the manuscripts, that part is not included in this section. It's in chapter 26. And we have examples of this happening, especially in the Gospels, where when people were writing the stories down, they'll try and make them as close to each other as possible, and a verse will come from here, and a verse will come from there. It does not change the story, obviously. 
And he's going to say that that's what happened in verse 26, but just in case you were wondering why. So Saul comes up the road. Without warning, a blinding light shines all around him, and he hears the voice of the Lord. I like to think this happened right after Paul or Saul made some really heinous, blasphemous boast against the Lord. Don't you think? I don't think they were just having breakfast and all of a sudden, bam. I like to think they see Damascus and this will be the end of the so-called church and their false messiah. Bam! All of a sudden, it's light. It's like daytime, but now it's shining so bright. He closes his eyes and he falls to the ground and he's got his eyes shut and everybody's hollering because they see the light, but they don't see who's there. And all of a sudden, there's a voice, Saul, Saul. When you see Saul, Saul, we see this in the Bible. When you see the name twice, you've got to read it with a little emotion. Like, Saul. And he's like, I can't see, I can't see. Saul, why are you persecuting me? I don't even know who this is. Who are you, Lord? Lord, there is not... Yahweh, you, Lord, there is sir or mister. Very, very polite word because it's, that's appropriate for this moment, I think. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. We could preach that all day, but you know that the Lord identifies with the suffering of his people? The Lord doesn't look down at us and say, ah, that sounds really tough. The Lord takes it personally when people oppress his church. And we do have that verse from 26 where the Lord said to him, it's hard for you to kick against the goads, isn't it? You know what a goad is. It's like a cattle prod. Something you poke into a big animal to get it to move. And every now and then you've got a stubborn animal. It starts kicking. Stop poking me. I'll stop poking you when you start moving. And Paul had been kicking against the goads. I like to think what this means is he had heard the words of Stephen. He obviously knew the gospel because he was around Christians all the time. And maybe parts of it were starting to make sense to him. So he starts praying things like, Lord, and he's still praying to the Lord, although he doesn't know that Jesus is the one in in whose name he should be praying. Lord, please help me. I just want to know the truth. I want to do what you are saying. He's like, okay, good. Then you need to believe in Jesus. No, 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 that can't be right. You've been praying. You've been asking to do the right thing, and you're not listening. So I had to knock you down and get your attention. And he's in darkness. He was expecting some fearful parade into the city of Damascus. (gasps) That's Saul of Tarsus. He's here for the Christians. Hide them. Find out where that man's going. So when he starts sprinting, find out where he's going. He's going to go to where the church is. Now, he's being led by the hand. He's blind. He's probably panicking and crying like a little baby. Not only that, he just had an encounter with Jesus. His entire worldview is being flipped on its head. Is there a doctor? Is there a hospital? Who is that? Saul of Tarsus. That's Saul of Tarsus? A little different, isn't it? And he refuses to eat for three days because he is considering, okay, what is my life now? What just changed? What just changed? That's true conversion. Absolute surrender. He was here, now he's here. He was going this way, now he's going that way. He was there to destroy all followers of Jesus, and now he's realizing Jesus is the Son of God. That's conversion to Christianity in its truest sense. It really bothers me when people say things like, it really shouldn't be about trying to see people become part of our church. Like they have to be on our team or something like that. Have you heard this? It's usually Christians, so-called our pastors, that are trying to get brownie points with people who are not Christians. I don't know if they want a few extra followers on Twitter or something like that. Like it's about helping people. It's not just about getting them on into our church or whatever. And it's like you're thinking about that all wrong. We're talking about people who are dead coming back to life. Well, don't you want to help them? Yes, that's very helpful, helping dead people come back to life. (laughs) This is how the world has changed. It's not through political engagement, Lord help us. Well, when we get the right people in there, it hasn't worked yet. 
It's not through activism. We're going to get out there and we're going to march and we're going to have signs and we're going to let people know. They're not going to listen. Do you listen to protesters on the street? I bet you don't. It is when people are changed, when souls are changed. This is how the Lord works. The Lord comes in and touches Saul's heart. That's how he changes things. You don't think the Christians maybe had petitions going to the Sanhedrin trying to get Saul to stop? They had Joseph of Arimathea on their team. They had Nicodemus was a Christian. They're probably trying to fight all this stuff. That didn't do any good, but you know what the Lord does? The Lord shows up and knocks Saul over. He says, he's going to be one of us now. That's what we are looking for. This is an instance of God grabbing hold of somebody's life and essentially forcing his conversion. Don't you love this? It's, all right, you know what? If I gave you a few decades, Paul, you'd probably come around, but I don't have that kind of time. So come here. And he kind of grabs him by his ear. He says, now you know the truth, don't you? Yes, I do know the truth. You know that this is what the Bible says. Yes, I do. All right, now we're going to get it together. I'll give you a few days to think it over. But I don't want you looking at anything else. So you're going to be blind for three days. He blinds him, sends him into the town, and leaves him there. You know the Lord does that to this day? I have met people that were saved without talking to a single Christian. People over in Nepal who had dreams and visions of a man who said, I'm going to teach you about a man named Jesus. He is the one true God, and you should find a Christian, and they'll teach you about Jesus. And they were saved through that alone. There are countless stories of Muslims over in the Middle East being saved through dreams. No one preaching them the gospel. They're being saved through dreams. Can God do that? Of course he can do that. He did it right here with Saul. He still does that. And then what do the Christians do? We come in, and we reap the harvest. We pick the apples. The Lord's got the apples ripe. We come and we bring them in. Romans 9.18 says, The Lord has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. What does that mean? Real basic. God's in charge of salvation, not you. It's not your job to make somebody get saved. That way is very dangerous. The church has been down it before, and we don't want to go down it again. It's up to the Lord to do that. That's the best part, though. It depends on Christ. God working out salvation. It humbles us because we realize, oh, all those people that... I got saved. That doesn't mean I'm so great. That just means that the Lord was holding me up and I got to pick up an apple and put it in the little basket. I'm just a reaper. And it's also exciting because there are so many people that need saving that it's obvious. You know, there, you, we have friends. We have people, I think they're a Christian. I don't know. I, they, they talk about God sometimes, but then they post this kind of stuff online. It's just hard to tell. Let's leave that aside for a minute. There are folks that definitely are not Christians, like Saul of Tarsus. An insolent man. There are people that need saving. And we have nothing that we can do to save them on our own. Wayward children, wayward parents who've walked away from the Lord or never found the Lord. Maybe you found the Lord later on in life. And then your kid goes, yeah, this is weird. I'm not going to go with you on this one. Children that have met somebody in their life that just poisoned their heart and now they're gone. Or they went off to college and they met some wacko professor that that stole their joy and, and has pulled them away. What about people who are, let's talk about people who are obviously not saved. What about people that are just strung out on drugs? Those people need Jesus, don't they? That's obvious. That's obvious. People who are dabbling in, we talked about this a few weeks ago, dabbling in sorcery and magic and witchcraft and all that stuff. And I'm not talking about some trendy thing that makes their Christian neighbor get all offended because there are people that do that and I've met them. It's like, what do you get that tattoo for? Oh, dude, it freaks people out. It's hilarious. Like, why would you do that? I'm dead serious. I've known people like that. And then they get saved and like, why did I do that for? And then, you know. But I'm talking about the real deal. I'm talking about serious. People that you see them and you just kind of get that bad feeling and you're like, all right, kids, we're going this way. That person needs Jesus, don't they? 
What about the gay community? Well, that's obvious. That's obvious they need Jesus. They have those parades. They have their thing. They have the stuff they do. And you look at it, and it's, it's depravity. It's depravity on, on so many different levels. And we look at that, and again, same thing. Take the kids. We're going the other way. We're not going down that road. They need Jesus. It's obvious they need Jesus. And we could go on. We could go on. You could talk about all the folks that are caught up in the gangs. We could talk everybody who's involved in the pornography industry. Those are people. That's, that's weird and awkward to think about, but it, it has to be thought about. Those are people that are caught up in that. There are people everywhere that hate God, and maybe they're loud about their hatred of God, and all you ever pray or all I ever pray is, Lord, I pray that you would not help them to influence anybody else. May they just kind of keep it to themselves. But the Lord looks at that and goes, how wonderful would it be if Saul of Tarsus were to get saved? How wonderful would it be if at the Gay Pride March this year, I struck a few people down and they were seeing visions of Jesus and then there was a revival that broke out in the middle of the street. How amazing would that be? That's how God thinks. The Lord thinks, what would it, how awesome would it be if that prominent, vile atheist were to all of a sudden repent publicly and declare his allegiance to Jesus Christ? How amazing would it be if the Grand High Ayatollah of Iran were to suddenly get up in his pulpit and say, we need to all repent and believe in Jesus Christ. That's how God thinks. People that are so far away that you can't do anything to bring them there. Have you ever met somebody like that? You try to share the gospel with it, and they're about ready to pop you in the face. They don't want to talk. They don't want to have a debate. They're not interested. Evangelism is important, but today we're not talking about evangelism. This is about God's ability to work salvation in the hardest of hearts. How amazing would it be if all of a sudden there's revivals popping out in all these places that we would never, ever set foot in a million years? Did you know that all the drug dealers are getting saved and people can't buy their drugs anymore? Hey, hey, man, I need a hit. Actually, you know what? I'm not doing that anymore, but let me tell you about Jesus. He saved my life. He saved my soul. That would be amazing, wouldn't it? What if it all of a sudden through, pick, pick the worst high school that you can think of, that you, you would you'd rather move to a different state than send your kid to that school. What if all of a sudden revival broke out in that school? And all of a sudden they're the ones out there sharing the gospel with people. What would it take if the gay community all of a sudden has revival sweeping through it? And now they're the ones out sharing the gospel. And all the people that you've been thinking, oh, I really wish someone would share the gospel with them. Now they're the ones bringing them all in. Because that's what's going to happen Saul is the persecutor, and Saul is going to have the same attitude that he had when he was following Judaism and say, hey, if this is real, we've got to go tell some folks. And he's going to get out there, and he's going to be the one that everybody remembers. You don't know anything about Thaddeus. He was an apostle too, but you don't know anything about him. The Lord had work for him too, but Paul was the one. He was the insolent persecutor of the church. And when he got saved, he put the rest of the church to shame with how zealous he was for the Lord. That freaks me out. I don't want that to happen to me. I don't want to lead a bunch of people to, to Jesus and all of a sudden they love the Lord more than I do. And all of a sudden you look at my life by comparison and it's like, do I even believe this stuff? That's revival. It's up to the Holy Spirit, not us. We are never going to sit here and drum up a revival. It's never going to happen. It's the Lord working, but you can be prepared. You can be ready. You can have the sails trimmed so that when the wind blows, you're ready to go. You can have laid the foundation of discipline to be ready for when the Holy Spirit begins to move. And this is exactly what happens in Acts chapter 9 here. There was a man who was ready, even though he wasn't in another sense. Acts chapter 9, verse 10. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. Was he a pastor? Was he a bishop? Was he a deacon? What does it say? 
a disciple, just a Christian, just a Christian. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, he said, here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. At the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. This is when Ananias' heart sunk right there. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in the vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. Like, you know who this guy is, right, Lord? You know his history. You know his story, right? But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. That's one of those phrases that probably has a whole lot more behind it. Is this uh, this the house of Judas? Yeah, what do you want? I'm uh, looking for Saul of Tarsus. Who are you? My name is uh, Ananias. Is he expecting you? Yes. Well, he's not, he's not disposed right now. He can't see anybody. And you'll have to come back another time. No, I'm, excuse me. The, God sent him a vision that said I was going to come. God, what? May I please just see him? What are you, some kind of rabbi? I'm actually, I'm actually a Christian. You're a Christian? You're one of those? Well, I'll see if he wants to see you. But you should stand right there because you might be under arrest in a few minutes. All right. He'll see you, but he's not doing well, so keep it short. And then Ananias walks in, and he sees him. And there's, there's Saul. Hasn't eaten, hasn't drunk anything for three days. He's blind. He's probably been weeping. He's probably torn his clothes, because that's what they did. It was a sign of grief back then. Can't see a thing. Hasn't been able to take care of himself. Far cry from the proud man that was going to ride into Damascus, wasn't it? And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And boy, was Paul ever filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. And for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. So here's another regular disciple, Stephen. Philip, Barnabas, regular Christians. This one's called Ananias, and he's called by the Lord to go and pray for Saul. Let me ask you, is that an assignment you would want? What if the Lord said to you, hey, I want you to get up, and the Lord gives you an address in your mind. You know this address? Okay, yeah, sure. All right. That is a crack house and brothel downtown. There is a prostitute down there that I want you to go in. She's uh, expecting you. She's had a vision that you're going to come. I want you to lay hands on her and pray for her. Would you want that assignment? Yeah, we're all shaking your heads. What if the Lord then said, this woman is going to go to China and she's going to lead more Christians to salvation in China than have ever been saved ever before. Get down there. All right, Lord, I'm going. That's the Christian life, you guys, is stuff like that. That's the Christian life. It is so important to know the voice of the Lord. And Ananias, by the way, is not rebuked here for double-checking with the Lord, right? But we talked last week about how important it is to know the voice of the Lord. This is why. So that when God tells you to do something wild, you just do it. Why did Ananias go? Because God had told him to go. What's he going to say? No. No, master. That doesn't work, does it? No, Lord. He said, okay, I'm going. I'm sure he was scared to death. 
And notice, too, there's so many things in this passage that's amazing, but it's Saul's prayer that seals the deal for God. How do I know that he's converted? He's praying. That's amazing to me, that the mark of a Christian is prayer. So much so that God could soothe Ananias' conscience about this terrorist by saying, he's praying. And Saul was a Pharisee. Saul would have prayed three times a day for years, but now he's praying for the first time, really. Because he's praying in the name of Jesus now. And he has shown how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Is that how you conceive of your life as a Christian? That your life is living out all the things that you must suffer for the sake of Jesus? There are a lot of passages that tell us that that's exactly what our life is. It is only through suffering that we may enter the kingdom of God. It is only through identifying with Jesus' suffering. It is only through enduring trials when it comes and not backing down. I think if we could conceive of our lives that way, there would be a significant change in our attitude and expectations. Well, he goes to Saul. Would have been a pathetic scene, you know. He goes in, there he is. Who's there? It's me. Who are you? And he's looking around and just, you've, you've seen people that are in, in dire straits before. It's heartbreaking. And he comes in and lays his hands on him and calls him Brother Saul. He prays for him. His, he sees something like scales falls from his eyes, which is, I think, one way the Lord showed us. This was not a hallucination where he had hysterical blindness. No, there was something covering his eyes. And he's baptized with water and the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9-11. through 11. This man would write this. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And I could drop a period right there and preach that. We'd all say, amen, yes, that's good hard teaching. We need to hear it. But you know what Paul continues to say? And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Paul was writing a letter to a church full of adulterers and swindlers and homosexuals and thieves and idolaters. And they were in the church. And Paul's like, listen, no one is going to come into the kingdom of heaven with that stuff unless the Lord Jesus comes and cleanses you. You've got to get to the end of that passage and not just be so self-assured of what's right and what's wrong that you have no love or pity or compassion for those people that are stuck in those things. We have to know that. Look what the church did in Damascus. Immediately they welcomed Saul. Ananias, you've got some splaining to do. No, no, no. He's been filled with the Holy Spirit. He went down and he was baptized. This man that was supposed to be their persecutor is now one of them. Our job as Christians is to be like Ananias and to reap the harvest of new believers. And I've said this before, new believers are inconvenient. They make the church services run less smoothly. They make the small groups awkward. They make the whole presentation of the church, oh, is there any way we could get them to sit over there instead of over there because people are going to think we're one of those wacky churches and they don't know the lingo and they don't know what they're supposed to wear yet and they don't know the rules, so to speak. It makes church frustrating and I'm very serious. I'm talking when, when reprobates become saved, they, they, they don't walk in and know how to, know how to act. You've got to teach them. And it's frustrating. And I would even have people, when we, this would happen back in Virginia, come and say, I just don't know about that kid. 
I'm serious. I don't know if I should be sending my, my kid to the youth group anymore if she's going to be there. I was not happy when I had that conversation. I then said, this is what church is. You're going to teach your kids that whenever somebody gets saved, you need to walk away until they've got it together and act like you? What is that all about? No way. The church is to be full of people like that. How would you like to come to a church full of thieves, greedy people, sexually immoral people, former adulterers, former idolaters, former homosexuals, former drunkards, former revilers? You want to come to a church like that? I do. I do. If we want to be obedient, we need to be those who are reaping the harvest, that we're acting like Ananias and bringing these people in, that when the Lord drops that moment in their life, that we're there to receive them, that when the fruit is ripe, that we're there to pick it, to be the reapers, that when somebody new walks in that door, you don't know them, you don't know where they've been, you don't know what their story is. Be there, welcoming them at the door, asking them if they know Jesus. Of course I know Jesus. Okay, well, that's praise the Lord, that's awesome. I don't want to offend anybody. What are we worried about? Welcoming newcomers, taking advantage of serious conversations that you're having with people. When you're out somewhere and you're just chatting in the grocery line and all of a sudden that conversation takes a hard turn and now they're on the verge of tears talking about stuff going on, that's their moment, you guys. You've got to go for it right then. Reap the harvest. Oh, I'm running late. Who cares? That's somebody's soul that is in your hands and the Lord has told you, give them my gospel. I'm not a really great apologist or evangelist. You don't have to be. You know the gospel. Jesus loves you and died on the cross for your sins. Don't you know that? Praying constantly for God to ripen his fields. Today's message is not a message of evangelism. This is a message of prayer, that we need to be in prayer like Ananias so that when God sees fit to bring these people in, that we're ready for it. Ready to reap the harvest. Don't you know what God did with this man? This man changed the world. And that's not... An exaggeration, that doesn't mean like he came up with a, with a new trend that was out for 15 minutes and then it was forgotten. This is the entire world different because of this guy. Because Ananias was willing to go there. He was willing to go and lay hands on him and pray for him. Because the church at Damascus was willing to bring him in. They were willing to endure the indignation of people that show up. Don't you know what that man did to my family? Remember, all these people had left Jerusalem because of this guy. Because their families are being ripped apart. Because mommy was being dragged away, remember? And now he's there, and we're supposed to just like act like nothing happened? Yes, exactly that. To forgive as you have been forgiven. Because Jesus said, as you forgive, so will the Lord forgive you. You don't want to mess around with that. He is the Lord's chosen instrument. Well, I just can't forget what happened. You better hope the Lord's going to forget what happened for you. <laughs> Every time a new wave of revival comes in, the church... There's two things. Number one, they advance in their maturity. They advance in their spirituality. You get that fresh blood in it, so to speak. And the church, yeah, let's go. I forgot about that. We need to keep going. And all of a sudden you're like, oh man, I've got to teach this person about the Bible. I better start reading the Bible again. Let's go out and find some more people. Now we're evangelizing. Or the old wineskins burst. They can't take it. Remember Jesus said that in Matthew chapter 9? You pour the new wine into old wineskins, the old wineskins are going to burst. Well, am I an old wineskin? Yeah, maybe, but the Lord can turn you into a new one. Lord, make me ready. That's why I love the stories of the Jesus movement, which is Calvary Chapel's tradition, with all the hippies coming into the church and all the non-hippies, seeing them come in with their bare feet, seeing them come in with their long hair and their beards, smelling weird. They've been living outside for a long time, smelling like drugs, maybe even coming in high to the church, walking on the carpet, making it filthy, maybe cussing out in the lobby, 
They're bringing in their buddies, and this guy's strung out on something. Like, yeah, man, he wants to hear about Jesus, bro. And they don't know any of the lingo. They don't know any of the hymns. They don't know any of the songs. And you read the stories, and you hear the stories told. There were folks in that church that did not like it. Coming in here. I come here to get away from all that. I don't want to bring all that stuff here. What about my children? You want me to bring them to church, and now they're exposed to a bunch of hippies at church? Oh, it makes you shudder, doesn't it? Because it's so close to home. It's like, oh, I could see myself being that guy. If I'm not ready for what the Lord wants to do, God intervenes in the lives of men. He sends his angels to set up encounters between people. Remember Philip last week with the Ethiopian? Where the Lord sent an angel to Philip to bring him down while the Lord was ministering to this guy so that they would intersect at Gaza at just the right moment? We've got to be ready. The Lord is doing that. And we do not want to be the sticking point for somebody's salvation. God's like, I want to work this out. If I can find somebody to go over and pray for Saul, our job is to bring people to the point of decision and watch Jesus do his thing. Well, verse 20. I'm going to go quickly through this section because I I really would like us to have some time to let this sink in at the end. But immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, He is the Son of God. I wonder what that was like, (laughs) that meeting. The ruler of the synagogue, like, oh, here comes Saul. Why is he sitting with Ananias and these guys? Okay, Uh, Saul of Tarsus is here from Jerusalem with a message from the high priest. And Saul, would you like to share that? Yes, I would. I came here to persecute Christians, but I was stopped on the road, and I'm now here to tell you that Jesus is the Son of God. Now immediately the synagogue ruler is getting up, trying to get him off, get the hook, pull him off the stage. And he's shouting, Jesus is the Son of God. It's all true. And now he's preaching, and he's arguing for the sake of Jesus. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the man that made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. He had his Bible open. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But not for the last time, I'll tell you what. This is going to be Saul's life for the rest of this book. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And Paul in 2 Corinthians is going to talk about this is one of the lowest points of his life. It was shameful to do that. You didn't run away. That just, you know, lower me out in this little basket and off I go. Not a very grand entrance or exit for the Apostle Paul, future Apostle Paul. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas, of course, the son of encouragement, Barnabas, took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, the same people that got Stephen killed. And it's entirely possible because Paul was from Tarsus that he would have been a part of this synagogue. Going back to his old buddies. Guess what? We were wrong. Very brave thing he's doing. But they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. This is a timeline of Paul's early life. You've got to synchronize it with Galatians chapter 1 because Galatians gives a little more detail and Luke is kind of skipping over a lot of details here. 
He's run out of town twice. He has to escape through a basket over the wall. 2 Corinthians 11 tells us that the Roman governor and the regional king named Eretus were both behind this. And we know that at some point in this section of verses, Paul spent a long extended time in the region of Arabia, in the desert, alone, and receiving revelation from the Lord. So Saul knows, he's like, I've got to go and I've got to think through a few things. So we do not know if this was before he was kicked out of Damascus or after he was kicked out of Damascus. We know it was before he went to Jerusalem. But somewhere in there, he's in Arabia receiving revelation from the Lord, probably working out a lot of that doctrine he's going to write later. And this time in verse 20 through 30 amounts to about three years. Once he gets to Jerusalem, they're not too keen on inviting him in. He has wrecked countless families in this city. You want to invite that guy here? It is Barnabas, who, of course, would be his future partner in ministry. He's going to bring him to the apostles. We know from the book of Galatians, this was not all 12. This was Peter, and this was James, not James and John, the son of Zebedee. This is Jesus' brother, James. And if you've read the book of James, and you know a little bit about James, it's sort of like they're bringing in the muscle to talk to Paul. And there's Peter, of course, who not only was the leader in a lot of senses, but he also had the, a very strong gift of discernment, remember, with Ananias and Sapphira and so on. And So, yeah, we'll, we'll see. Let's bring you in. This is who Paul says. These are the two that he, he talked to. But they examined his conversion, and they found it acceptable. And he has to run out of town again, this time to Tarsus, where he's from. And we know from the book of Galatians also, he's only in Jerusalem for 15 days. Didn't take long. They did not want him there. Saul knew what God had planned for him, but both times he tried to do what God had told him he was going to do, he failed. And we know he would spend more than a decade up in Tarsus. And depending on how you count it, it, it depends on whether you include the three years in this timeline or if you add it after. It was either 14 or 17 years from the time Paul was saved until he would finally come to Antioch and become one of the elders there. He's going to be in Tarsus for a long time. And as far as we know, the only convert he's going to make is a man named Titus, who has a letter in our Bible written to him by the Apostle Paul. Sort of like Moses. Moses thought they would know, I'm, I'm the deliverer. And they didn't want him. He was gone for 40 years. Sort of like Jesus spent time in the wilderness, spent decades in obscurity. Paul is going to have to learn that too. It's a reminder for us that salvation and ministry does not necessarily mean celebration and applause. If you think that you're going to do all these great things for Jesus and everyone's going to love you for it, you've you got another thing coming. Had Saul done a thing wrong? No, he hadn't. He was doing exactly what he was supposed to do, and he was run out of town twice, and he's going to get run out of every single town he goes to. Suffering and obscurity, that's the destiny of the Christian. Are you okay with that? You're saying it this morning that Jesus has to be enough. I, I want Jesus if he'll make me famous or if he'll make me respected in town or if I'll get to be known as the spiritual one among my friends. If that's what you're after, the Lord might have to teach you a few lessons in the desert. The Lord is enough for us. But verse 31, bringing it to a close. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria, do you see that's all three of the Roman provinces of the promised land now? Judea in the south, Samaria in the middle, Galilee in the north, had peace and were being built up, probably because Saul was no longer there to lead the persecution. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Persecution subsides, the church is spread. From now on, we're going to see the church begin to expand outside the promised land, which is pretty cool. 
Very simple message today. God is always at work saving souls, even and especially those people that have no chance, humanly speaking, of becoming a believer. And we are the reapers. We have to be ready to bring them in. Not talking about going out and sowing seeds through evangelism or watering the seeds that have already been planted. I'm talking about bringing in the harvest. That's the hardest time sometimes. And I'm not talking about closing the deal like a salesman. I'm talking about bringing in what the Lord has already done. Recognizing it, hearing the voice of the Lord, and being willing to step out. And that suffering is to be expected. Having a nice church is nice. I like that we have a nice church. It's nice. It's nice coming here. It's nice being around here. I like you guys. I like being around you. None of you make me uncomfortable. But I want us to be a hospital. That's what we ought to be, isn't it? A place full of people that have found Jesus and have figured out nothing else yet. You ever be with a new believer and you hear them cussing in their prayers? It's the most hilarious thing you've ever heard in your life. And we, we could get real offended. How dare you? Don't you know? No, they don't know. That's the whole thing. My dad tells a story about he was leading somebody to Jesus and he just, he cussed real hard in his prayer one time and he goes, I probably shouldn't do that anymore, huh? <laughs> no, probably not. <laughs> they don't know. They're going to come in here and we're going to look at how they're dressed. We're going to go, okay, don't look over there. But they need Jesus. They're going to come in, they're going to smell. They're going to come in, they're going to have a history. They're going to start bringing in their friends that don't know Jesus yet. Let me tell you, atheists travel in packs. They have buddies. They talk to each other. And when one of them gets saved, they start bringing in all their friends. And they're there basically to troll the service. I've had that happen before. They're going to start asking questions to people, making them look stupid. They're going to start scoffing and laughing at things. Get out of here. You're being rude. No, where else are they going to hear the gospel proclaimed? This is what we are to be, is a hospital, to be harvesting. We are being equipped here, going through the word, through prayer, not to live normal life. That's a sliver of it, but because we're supposed to be out in the harvest, bringing people in so that when people come in, they have mature brothers and sisters who are there to lead them forward. Can't you see being in this room and there's people packed out right over here, going all the way around the back, sitting at the very front and there's no room for anybody anymore? Because they're desperate to hear the gospel of Jesus and they're all getting saved. And I give an altar call and like 40 hands go up and we get to pray for them all. And I start drafting you in. You're like, oh, I don't know if I'm ready for that. I'm like, you are one of the 20 most mature Christians in this room. I need you right here, right now. Where we get to the point where people are, can't even get the door and it's like, okay, we're getting rid of the chairs. We'll keep one row in the back and I'll have to make announcements like, everyone, if, if you are comfortable sitting on the floor, please leave the chairs for pregnant mothers and I don't know, whatever else. And then they're, they're coming in, and now we're like, okay, what are we going to do with all these people? Well, I guess we'll have to have, have a few services outside, but now it rains. What are we going to do? I don't know. Let's, let's go to the park. We're just going to go do services at the park, and people start walking by. What's going on over here? And then people start, can't you see that in your mind? I, the Lord gives us that vision. See people getting saved, and then we have these meetings, and we just have people lined up to come up and give their testimony. This is my life. This is what I was doing. I was ready to kill myself and I came in here once because I thought, let's at least just try and see what God has to say. And now I'm following after Jesus. I had left my wife and I was ready to marry this other woman, but the Lord got a hold of my life and now I've gone back to my family and he's restored us and brought it together. I've been caught up in the pornography industry since I was 15 years old, but now Jesus has brought me out of that and I'm not living this way anymore and the Lord has told me my value comes from him. Don't you want to see that? Don't you want to see these people brought in that are so desperate and so hardened and so cold to the things of God that we can't take a single bit of credit for it? Because then the news shows up like, oh, Pastor Tyler, your church has exploded and all these people are being saved. What's your secret? 
That is when you have to be very careful not to touch the glory. Well, you see, we, uh, we have this strategy of teaching verse by verse through the word. and it's, uh, it's, it's spectacular, and people love it. And No, no, that's when you go, what? look at this. You think I could do any of this? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. It's the Holy Spirit being poured out on his church for the sake of bringing people in. Hudson Taylor said, It is possible to move men for God through prayer alone. How am I supposed to share the gospel with him? Don't worry about it. Pray for him. Get on your knees and pray for people. Fast for people. I promise you it works. I've seen it happen in my own life. It works. God changes souls. Let's learn what revival really means. We want to be Calvary Chapel of St. Ananias or whatever you want to call it. That we're just, we just bring people to Jesus. We have one job. They come in here, we bring them to Jesus. They come in, we bring them to Jesus. They send out and bring more people, and we bring them right back to Jesus. We have no strategy or philosophy or whatever it is. We just have the Bible, we have the Holy Spirit, and we have love for people who do not know God. Isn't that what we're here for anyway? Church can be lots of things in a culture with no persecution. And you know what? Maybe that's a blessing. I don't want to knock that, but for today, for today, there are people that need Jesus, you guys. And we're not going to worry about evangelism today. Because, you know, the more you start praying for lost people, the more you start getting on your knees and crying out to the Lord and praying for somebody like they ought to be praying for themselves, you're, you're going to start sharing the gospel with people. It's going to happen. It's going to happen on its own. The more you seek Jesus, and I'll tell you what, when you see somebody come in here that is so far gone and they come to Jesus, you're going to think, well, you know what? He's not that far gone. If God could save that guy, he could save this guy. Let's start praying for him. Let's start praying for her. And you're going to start doing this naturally. We don't have to force anything to happen. And you know what? We can't. You're going to force God to save somebody like Saul? Lord, we command you to shine the bright light around Saul and knock him to the ground. No, that's not what happened. The Lord showed up and said, hey, Ananias, I've got another one for you. Who is it? Saul of Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus? Yeah. Knock on the door. Philip, uh, there's, an, there's an Ethiopian that I want you to go and meet. You want to leave all these people? Yeah, leave the revival, go down to Gaza, and then we'll see where we send you after that. The Lord sets things up. We're going to see him do it again. Uh, Peter, I got another one for you. Great, Lord, who is it? Cornelius. Cornelius, that's a very strange Jewish name. Oh, he's not Jewish. He's a Gentile. He's actually a Roman soldier. You want me to go and share the gospel with a Gentile? Yes, I do. Go on over there. That's the life of a Christian. Listening to the voice of the Lord, and when then God says to go, we go. Don't you see that? Don't you want that? And don't jump to, well, what do we do? How do we make this happen? We don't make it happen. Just let the Lord fill your heart and say, yeah, I would love that. Because if, if you're feeling that, that's the Lord doing that in you. Well, I don't know if it's the will of the Lord for this place to be full. No, don't do that. Come on. Of course it's the will of the Lord for sinners to become salvation. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And the Lord needs men like Ananias and Philip and Peter who are willing to receive that kind of fruit. We've got to be those people. God stepped in and saved Paul. We'll use his Christian name. And he used a nobody Christian to come in and reap that harvest. That's why we're here. That is why we as a church are here. Is to be that. And we need to know that. That's how I want to raise my kids. I want them to be raised in a church where they're seeing souls saved. What's it going to look like? I don't know. It's going to be messy. Are you ready for messy? Can you handle messy? I bet you could because it's so glorious. When you start seeing people come in, love hopes all things, doesn't it? Well, see if that salvation sticks or not. That's not your job. Your job is to bring people in and to love them with the love of Jesus Christ.